You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Hello and welcome to the BMJ podcast on the 9th of April 2010. I'm Sabrina Malik and today we've got Aiki Anacho talking about the role of herbal remedies in modern healthcare. He'll be talking to Dr Linda Anderson from the MHRA and Michael McIntyre who's a herbalist. But first we've got David Payne with a roundup of this week's news. Hi Sabrina. Hi, David. Well, the big news, I think, on the UK front this week, obviously, is the announcement on Tuesday that there's going to be a general election on May the 6th. Um, So, obviously, all the parties are now sort of gearing up into campaigning mode. And uh, one story that caught my eye is... um, about process targets, which will be rolled out, according to Labour, if they win the general election. Andy Burnham, the health secretary, announced that at a King's Fund event this week. So what's Andy Burnham saying then, David? Well, I think the main message of his speech um, was basically about cancer being a key issue for for Labour as well as the Tories. Um, He also talked about retaining national standards. He said that he thinks that in a national health service, there must be national standards that every single patient has the right to expect when they arrive at the door of the NHS. And I think that's a bit of a departure from what the the Tories are proposing. He's also promising a shift in how providers are paid, linking them to quality rather than volume and and activity. Um, He's reiterating the commitment to reform and patient choice. Um, Although, interestingly, a recent Ipsos Mori survey showed that 80% of respondents don't necessarily want choice. So um, I don't know if he's barking up the wrong tree there. I think all parties seem to have this thing about social care. That's a really big um, thing on the uh, election agenda this time around. And, um, you know, Andy Burnham referred to beverage as five giants that led up to the setting up of the welfare state. And he described the fear of old age as a sixth giant. So um, we'll be seeing the parties, I imagine, sort of having further debate about that. And, um, you know, obviously there'll there'll be lots of stuff on bmj.com between now and the election on May the 6th. So just keep having a look and seeing what's on there. Excellent. Is there anything on Dr. Doc at the moment about the election? Well, the, the clinical community site that the BMJ's got, yeah, there is a, we're linking to a game, um, something from the King's Fund again, actually, which is a, you know, a rather interesting thing. And I imagine we'll have lots of debate on Dr. Doc as well. And what have you got next for us, David? Well, the next thing is a, a deal that's been agreed between the Department of Health in London and GlaxoSmithKline to cancel part of its swine flu vaccine order. It's agreed with them that it's saving about one third of the value of the original order that it placed for enough vaccine to protect the entire UK population. You know, obviously, the feared levels of swine flu never really materialised. So um, it capped the order for Pandemrix vaccine at 34.8 million doses, rather than having to pay for the initial order of 60 million doses. Um, and there's an order for a further 30 million doses from another manufacturer, Baxter Healthcare, that's already been terminated. OK. And what, what's the government going to do with any leftover or unused vaccines? Well, it's said that it's going to donate 3.8 million doses of the vaccine to the World Health Organization for use in Africa ah. um, before the rainy season increases the risk of infection with the virus. Excellent. And have you anything else for us, David? Yeah, there's another story that caught my eye, which is about Canadian blood services banning blood donations by um, people with chronic fatigue syndrome. It's announced it's going to defer indefinitely um, donations of blood by people with a medical history of CFS um, as a precautionary measure. And the agency believes it's the first national blood agency to implement such a restriction on donors with a history of CFS. Okay. Are any other countries following Canada's lead? Well, I mean, Canada's taken this action following a report published in Science in 2009, which suggested an association between CFS and the presence of a retrovirus, the xenotropic murine leukaemia virus-related virus, XMRV as it's known. And um, at the moment, as as I've said, it's Canada only, but I think there's been some interest shown um, from the States. Uh, Health officials in the US are investigating the relationship between XMRV and chronic fatigue syndrome and its significance to the blood supply. 
although there were studies conducted in early 2010 in the UK and in the Netherlands which were unable to confirm the findings of the study that was published in Science. So there is a bit of uncertainty there. So it's an interesting development by the Canadians. Okay. And chronic fatigue syndrome was covered, and indeed the, the paper was covered in a BMJ podcast a couple of weeks ago, which obviously listeners can still hear. And uh, there's also a BMJ learning podcast on CFS, which is on the learning site. Excellent. And David and I are at the European Health 2.0 conference in Paris this week. Have, have you got anything that you'd like to comment on from the conference, David? Yeah, there were lots of quite interesting things. There were lots of doctors on the at the conference talking about sort of web-based initiatives that they've started, um, sort of online consultations using mobile phones, iPhone apps. It was all a very brave new world. And it's interesting to me that we are now in this sort of territory where patients don't necessarily need to turn up at their doctor's surgery to see their doctor. And um, there was this reference, I don't know if you heard it, Sabrina, to apparently in the Netherlands, um, you know, it is illegal apparently, according to one speaker, to treat a patient without actually seeing them in, in person. So I don't know if things like that will sort of curtail the spread of initiatives like this. I, I was quite interested finding out all the, the variety of communities that are out there for doctors and patients. I didn't realise there were so many for patients. Yeah, me too. The, the main thing is that doctors aren't put off by joining more than one community site and think that's that's quite encouraging. Oh yes, and uh, and yeah, I think I, I did a session about Doctor Doc, obviously the community that the BMJ groups got, and um, you know we we talked about that, and I think that there is evidence that a lot of our members obviously are also on Doctors.net, uh, and uh, American ones are go on to Sermo and you know other ones around the world. So I was quite intrigued by that too. There's uh, they seem to sort of want to spread themselves across more than one medical community, which is good news for all. Yes. And now Aikiana Cho gets the lowdown on herbal remedies. DTB recently conducted a survey among its subscribers into doctors' knowledge about and attitudes towards herbal medicines. This included looking at what doctors actually know about herbal medicines and what they believe their patients know. In the DTB podcast, we also discussed the survey results with Linda Anderson from the MHRA and Michael McIntyre, a herbalist. This is an excerpt from that discussion, the full version of which is available for free on podcast.bmj.com forward slash DTB. Could you just outline what a product will need in order to get um, a a, a licensed status under that scheme? In order to get a traditional registration, the company have got to provide us with a full pharmaceutical dossier showing that the product is, uh, that the plants are manufactured under good agricultural conditions. The product's got to be uh, made under what we call GMP, good manufacturing practice. We actually inspect where the, uh, the product is made uh, as well. So the, the quality of the ingredients and the quality of the product is really as it would be for any medicines and the, uh, the controls are all in place. The, the company have got to show that the ingredients have been used for 30 years as a traditional medicine, with 15 years of that inside the EU. The reason for the EU component is so that we've got some confidence that there will have been some form of pharmacovigilance activity and any uh, major side effects, possibly drug-herb interactions, probably would have been noted. Not all, but hopefully most of them. The companies don't have to do clinical trials. That's really the, uh, the derogation that the, the, the directive allows. However, they do have to have plausibility in terms of uh, the usage of the plants. We know a lot about uh, many of the, the, the herbal medicines that are used throughout Europe. Uh, do you think that that's, um, for those people who, who want an excuse to, if you like, damn the whole field, do you think that that's a, 
that's a big omission, the fact that, that clinical trials won't be needed in order to get licensing under the scheme. Well, it, it is a derogation for, for this scheme uh, and there, w- there will be people who, who think that if, if something isn't uh, proven by way of conventional clinical trials, then it has no place. But in fact, I suppose... What, what's, what we're, a, what's the counter-argument to that? Well, I think the counter-argument is the real-life situation that you were alluding to earlier, the fact that these are available. We've had traditional medicines in Europe uh, for you know, hundreds of years, there's a well-established tradition in the but same I'm, way. I'm sure you both understand the point I'm making, which is that some people say, well, this is licensing light. It's, it's, uh, you're getting products waved through, which, um, which haven't, if you like, passed, in their view, the rigorous standards that so-called conventional medicines have to go through. And why should that be? Why should, in their view, again, these second-grade products just be waved through because they've been used a long time and somebody comes along and says, well, these can be made safely and should be made available? Well, Is, isn't, there a, isn't there a risk that actually <laughs> products that don't work particularly well will end up on the market with a stamp of approval from the regulatory authority? Well, we, we make it very clear that the products are based on traditional use only. So they're not expecting uh, perhaps it to work in the same way as as a conventional medicine. Scale. Who's not expecting it to work in that well, way? Well... <laughs> <laughs> the patient may very well expect it to work in that way. Yeah, and I, and, I think... And the doctor may be may assume that you're saying it should work in the same way mm. as a well, conventional we're, medicine. Well, we're saying that it's been traditionally used. I mean, for example, things like valerian. Uh, in fact, it was part of the doctor's armamentarium uh, before we had benzodiazepines. So there's some evidence that uh, valerian will help people sleep, but maybe it's not as effective as a benzodiazepine. Uh, if we don't regulate these as medicines, they will just go into dietary supplements. And that actually is the worst mm. case scenario. And if the medical profession doesn't get that, then it really needs to, to understand that because the, the health... I mean, we're fighting the, the food industry at the moment to argue that St John's wort should be regulated as a medicine and as a dietary supplement. Where would you like it to be? What are the risks if it goes into the dietary supplement side? There was a wonderful case of a yeah. guy who actually tried to market St John's wort crisps. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kid you not, there yeah. was, wasn't I mean, there? We, we're, we're Frankly, I mean, some things will be food, you know, food supplements. The, the, that market will remain. So most of the ginseng, for example, will probably be sold as dietary supplements. It's still an issue for us. Um, ideally, we would want it all under medicines, but we couldn't fight and win that battle. Um, you know, we, we really couldn't. Mm. But the risk to patients of the rubbish that will be sold. I mean, we know that a lot of the herbal products that have that are described as ginseng have never been no, near ginseng. ginseng. Sites, they, they've no. never no. seen no. anything beginning with no. G, let alone yeah. ginseng. Yeah. So that's the risk. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there have been deaths in the UK. I mean, we had a case at Bristol Royal Infirmary not uh, many years ago where a patient was admitted, uh, uh, almost going to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act. Very weird behaviour. And it was apparently some junior doctor who said, well, this looks like mercury poisoning. And Lo and behold, the patient's family then brought in this carrier bag full of stuff, and we found 11% of mercuric, chlor- mercurous chloride, I think it was, in the product. And that's a traditional medicine coming out of India. Yeah. That's, and, and were we surprised? No. Because, in fact, there's 50-something products in the Chinese pharmacopoeia that contain heavy metals. I also discussed with the experts about how we discover and record the interaction of herbal medicines 
with conventional medicines. Obviously, uh, we rely very heavily on, uh, it, with this dearth of information that we have, we rely very heavily on everyone in the, uh, the chain looking for different side effects, new side effects, even just the frequency of side effects we're interested in, um, potential for interactions. Um, is I mentioned that, that with St. John's Wort, we only know about the interactions because of good doctors observing uh, ill effects in patients. And the early cases involved cyclosporin and organ rejection. Very serious interactions, and it sparked the whole cascade of regulatory activity worldwide. Now, every drug that reacts with St. John's Wort, we've also got that information on the SPC patient information leaflet of the conventional medicine. So with oral contraceptives, it will tell you in the patient information leaflet that it could interact with St. John's wort. So we've put that specific example in. With warfarin, um, because of the, the general problems with warfarin, there's a high level message that patients using warfarin need to be very careful with all herbal remedies. And that's partly because they have to be careful with all dietary intakes of vegetables and so on anyway. Some patients aren't aware that some dietary supplements are herbal, uh, they could interfere. So those patients need to be well aware that lots of things could interfere with their medication. But I would certainly make a plea to doctors that Obviously, you've identified with your survey the lack of information the doctors have, the need for information. I think that's something that's very key. And I would hope that, as Michael said, through the uh, professional development efforts, educational efforts, that that can be remedied. Because it's not about whether you believe in herbal medicines or not. It's a case of what are patients taking. In the wider discussion, we mentioned recent cases where herbalists are said to have caused their patients harm and how this might have been avoided by registration and regulation of the practice. Michael, you mentioned a couple of times the putative regulation of herbalists. Perhaps you could just sketch in a little more detail how it's planned to work, not least perhaps to allay some of the scepticism that we know is out there about. Mm. It'd be, be interesting to hear your view on, on how it yes. actually works and whether it would be successful. I think that what's important is to realise that practitioners will be on a statutory regulated a register. That's what we hope the government's going to say, and that they, um, the use of their medicines, will be entirely uh, dependent on their maintaining that registration. So, if anybody behaves badly with a patient, or um, is unprofessional, or does something uh, which they shouldn't from a, a medicine's point of view, they can be struck off, literally struck off, and then they won't be able to work as a herbalist anymore. How do they get on the register? Then? Well, oh. that that they would get on through um, a, a training program. We have, I mean, my organization, which is an umbrella organization, um, has put together a common core curriculum, which I'm sure if any doctor looked at, would he, he or she would be delighted to see that it contains huge amounts of conventional medicine. We expect people to know and be able to diagnose to the point that they know the red flags when they see them and that they don't treat and we would absolutely require that. So this is university standard of education. It's delivered in universities in many, in several universities in the UK and it's over several years and the exams are tough. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing is that the um, MHRA and the professional herbalists have worked together to to look at a scheme whereby the products that 
practitioners use, which aren't exactly the same as the over-the-counter products, um, would be regulated um, if they were provided by um, a third party, they would be under license from the MHRA and they would be subject to quality controls. And the profession itself would have a list, we hope, of herbs that practitioners could use. And if they want to use something off that list, they would have to get very good verification of it before it could be added to the list. So all of this is yet to be worked out in detail, but it does provide a template the podcasts of the discussion and the full results of the survey are available on the DTB website, dtb.bmj.com. That's all for this week. We'll be back with more of the latest news and research next week. Thanks for listening. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.